on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, vignerons coping with the changing weather patterns. For the wine industry, that warmer world means uh, obviously warmer temperatures and faster ripening conditions. It also means that there'll be a drier landscape because there'll be more evaporation and you need more rainfall in order to maintain the status quo. And moving livestock with drones. So it's all about how you apply that pressure and when you release it uh, to keep your animals in a light, responsive manner and keep them in a good frame of mind as well because that's what uh, you know we really want to promote is sort of that animal welfare aspect because that just has a range of uh, you know productivity benefits um, if the animals are in a good state of mind. They're high-tech drones moving the livestock and the ever-changing weather patterns for the wine industry in the state. Those stories coming up for you today. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday. We're in just a moment. We'll hear from a couple of venture capitalists who are looking to help develop ag startups and how your farm could get in on the action. Plus, preparations for the latest apple harvest in the state. Also, a check on the weather as things warm up. And your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 is that number. 0438 922 Love to hear from you. First up today, Australian superannuation companies should play a greater role in supporting Australian agritech startups. And that's according to two of the venture capitalists who were part of the agritech pitch night at the Evoke Ag conference this week. Five Australian companies pitched their idea to venture capital investors from the US and Europe who are worth collectively around $450 billion. Alternative proteins as well as companies looking at measuring sustainability, water technology and robotics were among the topics discussed. Roger Drew, co-founder of meat alternative company 8 Day Foods, explains what he was pitching. We're um, producing an alternative protein, but endeavouring to do that in a way that is it honours the pulses and the grains that we grow here in Australia, and so not overly processing them, but being able to make them into a, um, a ready-to-cook protein. So there's quite a lot of lot going on in this space. Is it getting crowded, this plant protein space? Uh, it's a little bit like a Formula One race. It's very crowded and quite scary at the moment because I think we're still working out where this is going to settle um, in the long term. How are you different? We're different in the sense that we, as I say, honour what's been grown by Australian farmers. So rather than over-processing them or adding too many other ingredients, we just use one or two ingredients, being Australian pulses, to um, then use fermentation to produce a product that is nice and clean, labelled for the consumer. And you're working largely with lupins. Now, when I think of lupins, I think of feeding sheep in a drought, to be honest. How are they working as a human food? Absolutely. I've done that feeding sheep in in a drought before. Um, They're actually ideally suited for human consumption. And I think for the last 20 years, people in South Australia, Western Australia especially, have been looking for the right application for lupins in the human food area. And what we've discovered is that by using fermentation, we're able to do that really effectively and to produce a product that is able to use the nutritional aspect that um, lupins brings. So what was it like pitching to people worth in total $450 billion? Standing in front of a group like that is very daunting, but I think it gave us the opportunity to share a sto- share our story and our, um, our aspirations to a group of people who can actually make that happen, rather than just saying, that's a really nice thing, see you later. They're actually the people who are able to invest, and literally, to make it a reality. 
for Did You Get The Money? We're working on it. Because <laughs> it wasn't really a competition. You literally were just pitching and seeing how it goes. Exactly. The five of us who were pitching got together beforehand and we said, you know what, we're not actually in competition. We're all in this together and the people who are in the room are actually cheering us on and so we'll be doing this as a collective. That was Roger Drew from 8th Day Foods speaking there. Now, he's one of the people who was pitching to the venture capital investors uh, last night. But now we get to hear from a couple of those people who were actually in the room about what they are looking for from someone like Roger. I'm joined by Adam Anders, who is the managing partner and co-founder of Antera Capital, and Matthew Pryor, who is the co-founder and managing director of Tenacious Ventures. So uh, I'll start with you, Adam. You uh, grew up on a South Australian farm, but now you are working in venture capital. How did you make that transition? It began with uh, being lucky enough to study in England. From that point, I discovered a broader world, got involved in a fintech startup. That didn't change much for food and agriculture, but it, it opened my eyes to this industry and after a few years around venture capital and faster moving tech it felt like a gorgeous opportunity to take those learnings and apply them back to where it all started food and agriculture and it will bring Matthew Pryor into the conversation what did you make of the uh, ideas that were pitched to you last night you had a couple of plant protein uh, groups you had robotics some agri-tech some sustainability targets quite a broad range of things what did you make of the ideas that were coming to you last night the most exciting thing is just to see them. I mean, it wasn't a long time ago when, you know, there wasn't even a place where those companies could come and present their ideas. So I think it was fantastic to have an entire event dedicated to, you know, largely Australian-originated innovators, some amazing solutions, some fantastic founders, but a lot of it a function of this agri-tech ecosystem that we've now created and we can see it working and that was my biggest takeaway was just how far we've come um, you know in a kind of short five years or so. In about three years it's gone from 20 to 500 million the the ag tech space that's a massive increase in in two or three years what is driving that in Australia? Well you can't eat software right we 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 have to keep investing in in making our food systems more productive more profitable for farmers more sustainable you know and and also no one could not remember all the things that have happened in between those times and a lot of those things have really focused people's attention on our agri-food supply chains and the degree to which they're fragile or resilient to you know things we used to rely on and Australia happens to be very good uh, at innovative agriculture and it's a great place to be investing. You're largely working in the Australian investment space which yep. is why it was interesting to bring in Adam Anders to this conversation as well. Where does Australia sit in the global agri-tech evolution? So first of all Australia generally doesn't have a very mature venture capital industry. Our, our superannuation in, uh, sector is extraordinary, then its deployment into private equity internationally was exceptional and quite profitable for Australian super and somewhere investment in local VC wasn't respected, didn't get the backing and so it's left therefore the subset of VC that is food and agriculture also behind. On the tailwind side, we're dealing with a different growing condition from a lot of the uh, original seeds that we received a few, few or a couple hundred years ago. And Australians have proven to be incredibly resilient and innovative in how we farm. And Syro has been amazing. And so we see great technology coming from here, but an immature venture market is how I would summarise it. How does that then affect uh, the ideas? Are there the ideas and they're just not getting funded? Or is it actually even stifling the flow of ideas? It perhaps start, well, the flow of ideas out of uh, things like the Waits Institute locally, Syro, that's exceptional. It's how it then gets commercialised. So it might make it into the hand of corporates, or if it does make it into the hands of startups, often those startups move to commercialise in America very quickly. 
where they've got an ecosystem that will support an early stage startup. We've invested in a couple of technologies that came from Australia that are being commercialized in the US and it wouldn't surprise me if several of Matt's portfolio um, head to the US or Europe early in their uh, commercialization phase. Are you seeing that? Yeah, definitely. I'm one of one of our companies just flipped up. They call it flipping up to, to become a US-owned entity. I mean, it is a natural evolution, but I think a bigger well, market. You've got yeah, bigger market. Million people yeah, to 25. but also probably a more mature capital market, I would say. Um, and you know, Adam's absolutely right. We need more of our superannuation money going into Australian venture, and in particular in agri-food line investing, and that will help solve that problem because t they tend to run out earlier, and so to get those bigger checks to make that next big growth move, they really have to source that capital elsewhere. And unfortunately, that sees them leaving our shores before they really need to from a kind of customer growth point of view. And you mentioned, um, Adam, that Australia has a slightly unique perspective. It's got a different going conditions perhaps here. Is there anywhere in particular the Australian venture capital is, is focusing or perhaps ideas are coming through that are, are unique or Australia has an advantage in? Well, definitely uh, climate adaptive agriculture. I mean, it's a, it, the climate change is a global phenomenon, massive problem. We've been growing in arid conditions from the get-go, um, often without the right tools, uh, or at least not what the rule book said as things came from Europe. And so uh, that is a huge advantage. And that's from everything from the genetics to the uh, system of farming to the inputs that are selected and a lot of the research that's gone into it. So that is a massive trend and vitally important area and a spot where Australia has a competitive advantage. If you had one piece of advice to give to the Australian companies that pitched to you last night and perhaps the ones who would love to pitch to you, what would be each of your one piece of advice to them when they're trying to get their, their startup capital, their venture capital? Um, know where the money is. A lot of people still get stuck on trying too hard to throw a technology at a problem without really knowing who the beneficiary is and therefore who's going to pay for their solution. And mine would be yeah, a simple customer value proposition if that is the farmer then make it clear make it a clear ROI and um, and then communicate it in a simple manner because that cut through is what we see a lot of technologies that are out there trying to find their application or their solution let's start by actually giving the customer something meaningful from day one. It's Adam Anders, managing partner and co-founder of Ventera Capital, and Matthew Pryor from Tenacious Ventures, speaking there with Cassie Huff at the Evoke Ag Conference this week in Adelaide. And their message, Australian superannuation companies should play a greater role in supporting Australian agri-tech startups. Well, the east coast of Tasmania is known for its warm, drier climate, ideal for producing wine grapes. But with temperatures tipped to warm further in the next 20 years, climate experts reckon it'll feel more like Coonawarra. Research fellow Dr Tom Remini has been looking into regional weather projections and how growers might adapt to them. We're definitely going to see further climate change. Globally, we haven't taken the kind of action that's required to avoid climate change and so we are going to be seeing something around a one and a half to two degree warmer world based on all of the current commitments. We need to make far stronger commitments in order to reach these less than two degree warmer and even less than 1.5 degree warmer world um, kind of targets. So at present, it's really about climate change as a certainty, which actually helps in decision making. It just makes it a little bit scarier because some of those decisions are scary. For the wine industry, um, that warmer world means uh, obviously warmer temperatures and faster ripening conditions. It also means that there'll be a drier landscape um, because there'll be more evaporation. 
and you need more rainfall in order to maintain the status quo that we have today. So, um, and that is not projected. We're not expecting to see more rainfall. We're seeing, expected to see pretty much the same amount of rainfall. So that, that will be a drying landscape. So we've got an, there are two things that stress a, a, a grape vine. One is temperature and the other is dry soil moisture. Optimising that stress is what produces the highest quality grapes and that means that if those two things are changing then people managing vines are going to have to manage that stress in a different way moving forward to what they've done historically. Let's look at rainfall. The east coast in particular has had some really well traditional east coast lows in the last six months the likes of which they haven't seen for quite a while. Are those really wet systems, those really wet springs going to become less frequent or, or more frequent? The projections are suggesting that we're going to see a drying out of spring and autumn, which extends the fire season, is a nice way of thinking about that from a, a real practical point of view. Um, Australia is quite aware of that fire season sort of idea. And so, yeah, that drying out is, is expected to be seen in, in general. But that might mean that we have eight quite dry years and then two really wet ones. So in terms of the actual frequency of these, of these types of events or what to experience during that time of year, it really comes down to that detail of exactly what, what comes through. But I think the crucial part about these big systems that have been coming through and hitting the east coast of Tasmania recently is, yes, the climate drivers have been aligned in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time. Um, so we, we would have had these wet conditions re regardless of climate change. But what climate change has done is it's increased the intensity of those systems. So a warmer atmosphere can hold more water and so when it hits that trigger point to, to precipitate out, to drop out, you get more rain. And that's why we've been seeing these very intense um, rainfall systems coming through and hitting uh, the east coast of Tasmania. And what about when those heavy systems fall? Is that likely to change in the calendar year? The jury's out on how much that's going to change, um, depending on where you are in Tasmania. On the east coast, we are expecting to see more of those events happening during summer. There's uh, the subtropical ridge is being pushed further south, and as a result, the synoptic systems that are coming in, sort of up around Sydney Way, like in in that part of the the northern Tasman Sea and the like, um, are able to make it further south than they used to be in the past. Though all those sort of underlying conditions are making it more likely to have a synoptic system hit the east coast in summer and that's what the projections are suggesting is, is going to happen, which is not great for, um, for viticulture. It's, it's the time of year you want it to be dry as a bone and be able to say exactly when you're putting on water into your system. Could the east coast be likened to a much hotter wine region, say in South Australia or the Yarra Valley, say in 20, 30 years' time because of these changing patterns? Yeah, that's right. So um, with the temperature lens, um, the types of temperature that the east coast is going to see, particularly some of those places where the vineyards are currently positioned, which are in some of the warmer areas of, of the east coast, they're going to be more similar to the Coonawarra in terms of temperature. But of course, Coonawarra is a long way inland uh, and has a very different interaction with, with the coastline. Uh, and, and where, the, where the rainfall comes from. So the moisture balance is actually going to be more similar to, to places like Geelong. A lot of vineyards on the east coast are very uh, well prepared to mitigate frost and manage frost risk. How will that change? Yeah, so as we have increasing temperatures, then of course the likelihood of reaching those lower temperatures um, really decreases. And one of the things that we've been seeing around the world 
is that it's the minimum temperatures that are warming the fastest. So that means that the, these frost events are going to become less likely as the climate warms around us. There is a transitional point that we're basically going through right now where we might see that even though the temperatures aren't being reached as often, the humidity conditions are being reached to promote frost more often in a drying landscape so that you end up having a plateauing of, of the number of frost days before that starts to decrease. But all of the models are indicating that in, in, as a general rule of thumb, frost risk is going to decrease. Um, and over time, that's something that will, it will become less of, less of a challenge to manage in some locations. It's the manager's problem to have to say, well, which type of system am I managing at any one moment? And during these transitional periods where certain types of pressures are released and other pressures are applied, is where, is where it's very difficult for a manager to, to um, address that change. During these, these times of change is always more difficult than times of stability. And we're going through a time of change now. Do you think wine grape growers in Tasmania are prepared for that change? They're, they're looking closely at some of this data? The wine growers in Tasmania are very well prepared. Um, they've been some of the most engaged in climate change in the country for at least the last 15, oh no, it's 22 years now. Um, since the first um, work was done for the wine sector in Tasmania. So yeah, I think the wine industry is ready here. They've been applying lots of different adaptive strategies over the last 20 years. And I know that many people on the, on the mainland, uh, many operations on the mainland, are looking at Tasmania to move down here as, as a mitigation strategy or an adaptation strategy for them. So growing grapes in Tasmania will always be possible. Um, we have a very diverse environment um, which helps with lots of mountains if you're in a flat landscape it makes it harder and not just that there's there's also um, the, the places where vines are grown now will be places you can still grow vines in the future it'll just be a matter of what type of style you is is appropriate and and what type of uh, quality point can be can be reached in that location that's research fellow dr tom remini from the climate futures team at university of tasmania speaking there to larissa smith about the changing weather patterns on Tasmania's east coast. Uh, one for the diary coming up, uh, TFGA Pyrethrum Grower Committee, AGM, and also Grower Meeting to be held Tuesday, next Tuesday, 28th of Feb, at 7pm at the Alverston Football Club. Committee invites all Pyrethrum growers to attend. Contact TFGA for more details. Uh, Bonnie at TFGA. That's next Tuesday, 28th of Feb at 7pm at the Alverston Football Club, the Pyrethrum Grower Committee Annual General Meeting. Okay, coming up, we will look at uh, one orchardist getting ready for the Big Apple Harvest. This week on Landline, celebrating diversity among Australia's farmers. I was always given the support and the love from the people around me. I never for once thought that anyone was going to reject me. And the forestry foresight of some landholders in southwest Victoria. But I really like this idea that productive forestry could also be a land care solution. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Orchards around Tasmania are preparing for the apple harvest. Many have just finished picking cherries and we'll do a quick turnaround to get ready for the apples. The Sennans have 15 hectares of cherries and 25 hectares of apples just inland from Signet 
in the Huon Valley in the state south. Fiona Breen spoke to Peter Sennon as the family were finishing up their cherry harvest. It's all about now getting ready for apples. So getting ready for the harvest. All that entails getting the bins in, getting the workers um, arranged, just getting everything done. So it's a very busy time. Everything from, you know, getting, making sure the tyres on the tractors are right. So ordering new tyres, getting new tyres on tractors so that we don't have blowouts and things like that because you don't want things breaking down while you're busy, busy, busy. And do you have uh, workers helping you on the farm here? Um, Well, we have our son who works for us full time and we've got young Ryan up there on the other cherry picker and we have four other workers as well. And I made the mistake of yesterday saying to them, if it's raining in the morning, just don't come. And of course, (laughs) two spits of rain, but they all live snug way. And it was wet and snug, so they haven't come today, so that's fine. (laughs) And do you get people in to help picking? Oh, yeah. Um, We have about 30 pickers for the apples. What sort of apples do you have here? Um, Our main crop is royal galas. Um, We also have pink ladies. We have Envy and Kansy and a few other, few other minor boutique varieties. How are they looking this season? Yeah, size is pretty good. I think they will be pretty nice by the, at the end of the day. They've still got a few weeks to grow, so... Well, people in various industries, cherries, etc., have talked about a funny season with some rain uh, before Christmas. How has this affected apples? Well, it has been a funny season. Some... We, we chemically thin all our apples, put chemicals on to make them drop apples. Some years it doesn't work very well because of the weather. Some years it works really well. This was a really well working year. So in some spots we've probably dropped too many apples off our trees. End of the day that probably doesn't matter too much because we're probably better off to have an 80% crop than a 110% crop. An 80% crop will do better than a 110% crop. So they're probably going to be better quality? I would think so, yeah, better quality. So just explain to to the average listener, the public out there, why we actually do thin. Um, Anyone that's got an apple tree in their backyard will know that an apple tree has a million flowers on it and will set a million apples. Well, to get your best apples, you've got to grow the right number of tree apples on your tree. So, for example, these trees here, 265 is the magic number of what you want on your tree. Okay. okay, that's pretty good. Yep. So trees we're going to down the other end, their magic number is 120. So it depends on the size of the tree, the row width, the tree spacing, as to how many apples you should grow on a tree to get the optimum crop load of the best quality fruit. Well, that's a lot of management, isn't it? It is a lot of management, yeah. So you're actually sort of guesstimating or having a look, trying to count the numbers on trees? Well, we do initially. Um, we th- try and get workers to do the right thing because obviously we have 30 people come in to thin, do a hand thin of the apples and we try and educate them as to what the crop load should look like and we hope that they get it right because obviously we can't do it all ourselves. Okay now tell me just to move on from growing uh, what about markets where do you send all your apples and how the market's looking? Well that's really all out of our control um, all our galas and pink ladies all go to one of the major packing sheds in Victoria. So we pick them into their bins and we have a freight company come in and take two or three semi-trailer loads of apples out a day. Wow. Yeah, so, um, and actually all our apples go off to other places and we have no control over marketing. 
we're the grower. We don't have anything to do with marketing at all. Do you export at all? Not apples. We haven't exported for a long time. Um, we used to we used to have old varieties called Democrats and the Red Delicious. They used to go to India years ago. Wow. But not, but not now, <laughs> no. And look, they talk about exporting different varieties to other places, but... No, it's not something that we do at this stage. Have you been told how prices will be will go this this year? What you're expecting? Well, um, I've been told that prices should be good, mainly at the detriment of other growers. So interstate, interstate. Shepparton has had mail, lots of hail damage, lots of flood damage through lots of the growing areas. So lots of crops have been lost. So because of that reduction in crop load, prices should be more buoyant for this year. It's bad news for them, good news for you. It sort of goes roundabout, doesn't That's it? That's right. It's um, What's good luck for someone is bad luck for someone else. Yeah. And what are you hoping uh, for the for the future, you know, once apples are out in the market? So people, still, is the demand still good, do you think? I think so. But, you know, the issue we have is people know their favourite variety and there are all these new varieties coming on and people are so reluctant to try a new variety. So it'd be really nice if people got out there and just tried those different varieties they haven't tried before and see the benefits of them. Can you give us sort of a description of some of the new varieties, what you think they taste like? Oh, gee, that's a bit of a hard ask. Um, Is Envy one of the new ones? Well, Envy, yes. Um, I think that's got a fairly good market. It's a fairly sweet apple. It's a hard apple. It's a dense apple. It's got a really nice, carries a really nice flavour in your mouth. Cansey also, we've got Cansey. It's a different looking apple. What, what does it look like? Well, it's a bicoloured apple. So whereas an Envy or a Royal Gala will be like a blush all over sort of thing with a bit of a background colour, a Cansey will be one side pink to red, the other side will be green, so bicoloured. So you know, the shady side of the apple will always stay that greeny background. And quite sweet as well. And quite sweet, yeah. It's Peter Sennon from Hewan Park Orchards near Signa talking to Fiona Breen about getting ready for the upcoming apple harvest. Still to come on the country now, the new CEO of Cattle Australia also moving livestock with a drone. And a check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Tasmania's confirmed its first case of measles since 2019. The person in their late 20s has recently returned from travelling overseas. Measles is highly infectious. Contact tracing is underway and the Department of Health says the person is now in isolation in the Launceston General Hospital. A man and two teenage boys have been charged with a number of offences after a fight involving over a dozen people in Hobart's CBD last night. The 25-year-old man and two 15-year-olds have been charged after police were called to the incident involving up to 20 people in the Elizabeth Street bus mall at about six o'clock last night. Philippine search teams are working to retrieve the bodies of two Australians and two pilots who were killed when their light plane crashed into a volcano at the weekend. And the first legally grown crop of magic mushrooms in Western Australia will be planted in the state's southwest within weeks ahead of a trial in which they'll be used to treat depression. The clinical trial will examine how psilocybin in the mushrooms can help people with treatment-resistant depression. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Hey, Tony. How are you going? Going all right, but I was just hearing you this morning saying 30-odd degrees today, or 29 or whatever it is. 
uh, in in yes, Hobart, yep. and I was like freezing. It was cold. What's going on? Yeah, it was it was a minimum of thirteen point three degrees this morning. So okay. I, I think that means that you're uh, you're acclimatising to the the warmer weather, Tony. Mm. But, uh, but it did it did feel a little bit cold. Got down to uh, coldest temperature in the state overnight was uh, about one degree at Butler's Gorge and five degrees in Ouse. So. You know, usual places, but the temperature drops out. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, starting to warm up now. Uh, the highest we've seen so far today is 25 on uh, King Islands, uh, 24 in Launceston and 24 degrees in Hobart, but still a couple of hours of, of uh, heating to go before we see the maximum. Those maximums today we're likely to, to see 29 in Hobart and uh, 26 degrees in, in Launceston today. So the big so, heat is you know, being cranked up slowly. Yeah, yeah, t- yeah, turning on the heater. I suspect um, the the heat's you know been a bit slower to develop today because of the the middle and high level cloud drifting over the state, but the heat's going to build uh, overnight tonight. It'll be it'll feel warmer. Uh, expecting a minimum of 16 in in Hobart and a top of 32 tomorrow, and uh, 32 expected tomorrow in uh, Launceston as well. Friday night into Saturday is going to be a real warm night, a minimum of 18 or 19 degrees in Hobart and about 14 or 15 degrees uh, in Launceston. Now, we're talking yesterday about Saturday also being quite hot, but the cool change looks to be arriving a little bit sooner during Saturday. So we might not quite get to 30 degrees in Hobart and you know other parts of Tasmania, but it probably won't be too far off. What it does mean that sh- is that showers will be more likely during Saturday, so it's likely we'll see some showers uh, develop uh, from the west of Tasmania on Saturday morning and extends to most areas during the afternoon before contracting to the, the west and far south again in the evening. And in terms of rainfall, we're looking at up to around 5 millimetres for most parts of the state, which is decent compared to you know the lack of rain we've had in recent days. And uh, the west will probably get about uh, d- double that, if not a, a bit more. So, you know, a decent, decent front to cool us down. Now, if you're worried about feeling cold, Tony, Sunday will probably get, catch you out. I reckon we'll struggle to reach 19 degrees as a maximum in Hobart on Sunday. <laughs> so, Gee. like, if you think think about a seven-day period, last Monday was 16.8 in Hobart, and if we do get up to the mid-30s uh, tomorrow and then back down to sort of 18 or 19 degrees on Sunday, that's a, that's a big, big swing in temperature range for a week, isn't it? Mm, it's a roller coaster. Mm, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure is, so... Hopefully, with that change arriving a bit sooner on uh, Saturday, it will mean that we won't quite get as hot. So our heatwave warning that we've got current for a lot of western and southern Tasmania will uh, be a little bit reduced this afternoon when we when we issue the afternoon temperature forecast. And at the same time, the fire dangers should uh, reduce a little bit on Saturday as well. Still looking to be quite high. And uh, while we're talking about fire dangers, tomorrow's fire dangers look to be quite elevated as well. So high in just about all the districts in Tasmania, but there'll be pockets of extreme fire danger uh, about uh, the sort of Midlands and southern part of the central north uh, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Not an out-and-out total fire ban, but very close. No, I don't think so. But, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly getting closer and closer each time we get these these kind of days closer and closer to to having a, a fire weather warning issued we haven't yet issued one uh, this fire season and uh, yeah i don't believe we've had a fire ban so far this season either but there's still some hope left in it so talking about the cool change next sunday it does look like uh, for the majority of next week things will be fairly cool but there's some indications that around the 7th or 8th of March, we might start to get back into the, the hot zone. So mm. we don't get a lot of rain between now and then. We, we could just as easily be back into fire danger days, even though we'll be out of summer. Is that a record that we have not 
had a total fire ban for this summer? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there, there's the odd the, the odd quiet year where we we haven't uh, we haven't okay. seen them, or we haven't issued fire weather warnings at least. They don't necessarily correlate those two things, but there's, we certainly do go the odd year without having uh, having a, a, a fire weather warning. Okay. Now talking warnings. Any uh, other warnings? Yeah, we've got, uh, other than that heatwave warning I mentioned, we've got uh, a strong wind warning today for lower eastern coastal waters between Wineglass Bay to South East Cape and western waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley. Tomorrow, uh, eastern coastal waters uh, from St Helens Point down to South East Cape will have strong winds as well, and uh, western waters between Low Rocky Point and Stanley maintain their, uh, their, their strong winds. So coastal waters, both today and tomorrow from this point onwards, you're looking at broadly north-northeasterly winds 10 to 20 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots about parts of the east and west. Looking at the swell today and tomorrow, it's fairly uh, fairly light on. In the west and south, we've got a south to southwesterly to around one to one and a half metres, uh, decreasing slightly tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, confused below half a metre today, but uh, gradually becoming northeasterly towards one, metre, one and a half metres offshore through Bass Strait tomorrow. The east coast has got a southerly to around one metre, decaying a little bit tomorrow, and a northeasterly below one metre today, uh, increasing to one and a half uh, metres during the course of tomorrow. Now, significant wave height observations on the west coast, 1.2 metres at the moment, and off Mariah Island, it's about 1.1 metre at the moment too. Beauty. Thank you for that, Luke. Thanks, Tony. Have a good one. You too. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 0438922936. Ian on the text line says, G'day, Tony. Radio climate expert. He needs to do some fact-checking. Kunawara, 64 k's from the coast of southeast SA. By comparison, Campbelltown is 70 k's from the east coast of Tasmania. Thank you for that, Ian. 0438 922936. Luke Bowen has been appointed the inaugural chief executive of Cattle Australia. It's the new peak body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry. Luke is currently the head of the Agriculture, Fisheries and Biosecurity for the Northern Territory Government, but is perhaps best known for his time as CEO of the NT Cattlemen's Association and the role he played guiding industry through the live export ban in 2011. He sat down with Matt Brand to talk about the new role and explain what Cattle Australia is hoping to achieve. Cattle Australia, so it's the peak body uh, that was formed in November last year through um, a democratically elected board uh, that's now in place to represent the cattle industry at the national level. So it's simple as that. So it's the member-driven, member industry-driven body. Uh, it's the restructure of Cattle Council of Australia, who a lot of listeners probably would be familiar with, yep. which is the peak body for the cattle industry. Um, it's been through a restructure process, and now we have Cattle Australia. Why does the grass-fed cattle industry need this? So, Matt, if you look at the numbers, uh, 30% of Australia's agricultural production is from the beef industry. Uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, manages about 45% of Australia's land mass. Um, this is our biggest export industry, um, and it's a major player, a major uh, foundation of our agricultural sector. Um, it in, underpins a lot of our economy, but also underpins employment, uh, regional and remote locations. It is well, it's part of the fabric of this nation. Cattle Council of Australia, the predecessor, basically was run on a shoestring budget, barely had any staff, and that caused all kinds of problems. How is Cattle Australia different? Well, I think what we have to have in a national organisation like that is an organisation that's effective uh, and can have influence, um, but fundamentally needs to be tuned into its members and the industry. 
Um, so It would need more funding too, yes? Do you have more dollars at your disposal? Well, of, of course. And I'm not in the job yet, Matt, so I'm going to leave that for later on <laughs> okay. to talk about that. But clearly, um, it's fundamentally there to advocate for the industry. Um, and, and I think, like any organisation that does that well, uh, I think things will flow from there. Uh, there are a few big topics in particular that you know you'll need to get in and tackle first. Yeah, and look, the, the board is very um, uh, a very high-capacity board that's been appointed from around Australia, um, and that's, that's a, an incredibly powerful start for this organisation. Uh, it also has a policy council, which um, will evolve into a directly elected policy council, which is made up of representatives from around the country, but also uh, state farm organisations will be involved in that policy council. So that is the engine room in relation to what is important for the industry. Um, to put forward and what to prioritise, what to advocate for. Um, so that'll be the engine room um, and driven by a very, very focused, very powerful, uh, very effective board. Yeah. A, a board that is impressive, no doubt, but a board that is mostly male, just the one female, do you feel that's an issue going forward for, a, for an organisation that's meant to be modern and representing the entire cattle industry? The, the board's going to be refreshed every, every year, so there's a process in the Constitution of doing that. So right. certainly um, we know the role women play in, in, in industry. I mean, they're right in the middle of it all, and uh, we know that. And certainly uh, the territories have demonstrated the role of women in the agricultural sector. Uh, it's undeniable. So, I mean, this is a, a process of continual renewal in relation to the board, so there's, the Constitution's been set up that way. Um, so I expect we'll be seeing a lot of women lining up for the board. I asked you about some topics that you'll need to tackle first. You told me about how good the board is, but yeah, what about topics, issues you'll need to tackle? Well, I think I'll take direction uh, from the board and the policy council, clearly. I'm okay. not in the job yet. I've got plenty to do in this current job. We've got a lot of challenges with biosecurity and um, a number of other things. So, uh, But I'll be taking direction and, and my, my mission will be set by uh, the priorities that the board and the policy council uh, establish. It's been, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a rocky road to get to this point for Cattle Australia. Is this organisation still facing legal challenges? Um, I can't comment on that, but I, I, uh, so I'll, I'll abstain from making any comment on that. Uh, but I think we've got a positive way forward from what I understand. Okay. What are you most excited about in this gig? Oh, look, this is in my DNA, Matt. Um, I love this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's, um, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just... It just really You're back. Feels, yeah. Some someone right. in the industry thought I should either play, you know, regal music or welcome back Cotter to introduce you today. You're back in. No, it does feel nice. It really does feel nice, Matt. Not, look, at the end of the day, I love this industry, and, and even working in government, I've been a very strong advocate for industry, and that's why the job I currently do is all about industry, and um, and we wouldn't be there if we didn't have an industry. So this is just an extension of that. Um, I'm passionate about agriculture, I'm passionate about the cattle industry, um, and quite frankly, I couldn't think of a better place to land. Luke Bowen, who's the first CEO of Cattle Australia, the peak body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry, talking there to Matt Brand, and uh, commences the role on April 17. Welcome back, Cotter. Boy, that's going back, isn't it? Well, it's a dairy now, and bigger cheese profits are down by 74% in the half-year financial results, which have just been released. High Farmgate milk prices have put pressure on profit margins for the processor, which it says were beyond what could be realised in the domestic market. And despite a record milk price, Australian milk production dropped by 7% due to labour shortages, flooding and farmers transitioning to run beef enterprises. Josh Becker has more. 
Record farmgate milk prices are starting to hit processor profit margins. Vega Cheese profits are down 74% to $7.3 million in the half-year financial results released to the ASX today. Revenue is up 11% to $1.6 billion, but earnings are down by 26% compared to last year. Barry Irvin said the big challenge was the step change in dairy prices. A statutory EBITDA of $71.6 million uh, and a normalised EBITDA of $74.6 million was, was, of course, lower than the first half, and I think it's well understand uh, what drove that. It was, it was largely that timing of price increases uh, uh, in the market, which lagged significant cost in, in, increases. The company announced earlier this week it will close its Canberra manufacturing facility, which will see 19 jobs go. Barry Irvin says he expects more rationalisation across the dairy industry. There is uh, still, I would say, further need for rationalisation of capacities within the Australian industry, and we do, we 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 do, you know, very regularly, particularly me personally, reflect on on where we think uh, supply in Australia might go over the over the medium term. And, and there is no question that there's still, there is still too much stainless steel um, in this country for the level of supply that we have. But good to see that, it's not, that, that some of that rationalisation is occurring, whether it be us or, or, or a number of our competitors that are, that are, that are, that are, that are making decisions that, that will, will, I think, make for a more healthier processing sector uh, in the medium term. So what about the outlook for this year's Farmgate milk price? Here's Barry Irvin again. I would say that um, you know it is too early to call on Farmgate milk price, but you know I think it would be notable that you would not expect that uh, it, it would be it would be um, probably at the very least stable. On balance, we would we would probably say that there is a, a little bit of downward pressure in in some regions. Um, it's probably because of scarcity uh, be a little more stable than, than might have otherwise been the case, but. I think all players would would say there is you, you need to reflect the market returns in your price in your in your farm gate milk price and and obviously there is a change in those market returns as far as as far as international markets are concerned domestic market we would say will be more stable. Analysts ask the Bega Group what they make of the recent price increase offered from Coles to its suppliers and what it says about the outlook for the farm gate milk price. So my my perspective is um, look it demonstrates that I think. Coles believes that, that that part of the market is stable and requires a stable um, stream of milk flow. We would we would agree with that, and and because we're exposed to that, we, we're actually quite pleased to see that stability. Um, I think elsewhere it, it, it represents one part of the market would be what I would say. I think elsewhere that it, it is what I answered earlier. Um, it, it you know the way we ultimately come up with a farm gate milk price, the way our competitors do is, is a mix of the of the markets we're exposed to and the products that we produce and and um, so I, I I saw it as a, as a reflection of the market that they're looking to service. I think you know it's 450 million litres of seven and a half billion. So Barry's right. You need to think of it in that context. I think what it indicates though is that the cost of the product on shelf is sustainable in the consumer's yeah. mind and in and in Coles's mind. And so given that we're an 80% branded business, that's, that's, I think, something that we can be pretty positive about. That's Bega Group CEO Peter Findlay and Executive Chairman Barry Irvin ending that report from Josh Becker on the half-year financial results for Bega Cheese. Profits down 74% and the market has responded. Share price down by 6% today. 
Well, mustering livestock with drones is a cheaper, safer and more productive auction. That's according to Luke Chaplin, the founder of Sky Kelpie, an agritech startup aiming to be the first company in the world to commercialise mustering with drones. Although there's still a few kinks to iron out, Luke believes drones will ellipse traditional mustering methods in no time. He shares how the idea was born. So it was bored in a uni lecture uh, in 2017 and my mate and I uh, were just daydreaming about different solutions. Um, drones were, they were definitely had been around for a few years, these consumer drones floating about, but we thought how good would it be to muster with them? So from there um, I was lucky enough to join up with Farmers to Founders, their ideas program. I then got a Nuffield scholarship um, which really opened the door you know, PR wise uh, to some funding and support. Um, so last year we did uh, quite sophisticated trials in this space with Meat and Livestock Australia and Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and we, we're really excited. So we've validated our assumptions, it works. Um, so now what our job is to build um, a range of products and services to enable livestock operators to fly the drones themselves. And when it comes to them being able to fly these drones, what sort of licences and regulations are barriers for that to be able to happen? So at the moment, um, under the regulations, there is the landholder rule, um, and it's quite cool. So it permits livestock mustering if you are under 400 feet. Um, it's your own drone on your own property, but you have to keep it within visual line of sight. So what we're proposing to um, the regulator this year is just for some more streamline and practical uh, you know, regulations um, around this. It's very complex, time-consuming and expensive. You'll need a consultant at the moment to be able to get beyond visual line-of-sight permissions for your property. Um, so we're really hoping to break down that barrier and I think it'll really open up to the possibility of adopting this solution you know, industry-wide. How does a drone compare to traditional dogs, horses, helicopters, motorbikes... What are the benefits to having a drone? Well, Demetria, you can put a speaker on it, and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing Woo Bullock Woo. So that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. Um, the way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So just like a, a dog, a motorbike, someone on a horse or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. So it's all about how you apply that pressure and when you release it uh, to keep your animals in a light, responsive manner and keep them in a good frame of mind as well because that's what uh, you know we really want to promote is sort of that animal welfare aspect because that just has a range of uh, you know productivity benefits um, if the animals are in a good state of mind. And how are the cows responding to the drones and what other benefits can you see the drone having on the land? Yeah, so really well, as I said, they're, they're moving off it as a form of pressure quite well and we're able to keep them in a, in a good state of mind. Um, you know, the technology allows for a range of different benefits, I think. Um, you know, with infrared cameras and, you know, the great zooms on them and we can start to harness some AI for detecting the animals as well, I think that will really allow for clean paddock musters. And if we can make sure that all animals are accounted for, I think that's going to have benefits for fertility, you know, past pasture management, supplement management and also pest detection as well. Um, with our trials last year we were able to find quite a lot of wild dogs on sheep properties and really interesting, you know, finding them at night time with thermal imaging, um, it was really effective. You're heading overseas to do some more research in this space, what are you hoping to discover? 
So I'm heading to Asia next month as part of my uh, Nuffield travels, um, and I'll be meeting with some, you know, large drone manufacturers over there, basically just to get them excited about, you know, this is a huge use case um, for their technology. Possibly I can convince them to, you know, focus a bit of their R&D towards this solution and, you know, yeah, and possibly spark up some, you know, partnerships for distribution. So that'll be next month. Um, I'll heading, be heading to America as well, Israel. Um, so basically uh, to explore all the, you know, great technology that's happening overseas and what other countries are doing with their regulations as well. Uh, having said that, Australia is probably best place to be pioneers in this progressive regulation space because of our low air risk and ground risk in rural Australia. Um, it, it really lends itself to progressing these regulations to be able to fly these drones out of line of sight. I'm with CASA on keeping the skies safe and they've done a great job in, in keeping the aviation community safe for a long time. Um, I think we can do it in a practical and safe manner that really unlocks the full potential of this solution. And you're working towards a commercialisation of this product. How's that going? So it's going. Um, but that's why it's good to come to events like this to network uh, and just bounce ideas off people. So, you know, our, our customers are at the forefront and we're using some really, you know, excited, energetic early adopters and we're going to learn off them just as much as they learn off us. So uh, really keen to connect um, with people who want to get into drone mustering. Um, we're here to help and, and let's get through it together. That's Luke Chaplin, founder of Sky Kelpie. Speaking with Demetria Panagiotaros at the AgriFutures Evoke conference in Adelaide, uh, Luke reckons mustering livestock with drones is a cheaper, safer and more productive option than as we do it at the moment. What a great name too for the drone, Sky Kelpie. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Sounds like he wants to put the dogs out of a job. Don't think that'll happen. Not not for a while, anyway. Well, finally, today, a decision made almost four decades ago to relocate from America to Tasmania has paid off for one northeast goat breeder who concentrates on getting the best mohair off the goats. Robin Dark runs the Angora goats at Nabola and told reporter Madeleine Rojan she had to sell off her goats, her sheep and rabbits when she made the decision to leave Wisconsin in the US and come to Australia and wanted to see more of the world Um, and so we came to Australia. It took about a year to go through the process and all the chest x-rays and everything and they told us to go to Perth, Western Australia because that's where all the computer programmers were going which is what my husband is. We were in Sydney and we stayed there a few months. Perth was too hot and the more we heard about Tasmania the more we thought wow it sounds like our place. So we came down yeah, about 38 years ago. Oh, I have um, the colored angoras, and I get them shorn twice a year. And I'm trying to get my business going. I, for years, I, well, it's probably 40 years I've been doing textiles. And I've hand-spun, make garments. I use a knitting machine now. They're, it's much faster. But I bought a um, sample curtain machine from Tazcots when they closed. So it's still a lot of work. And I can't crank it out. It's a lot faster than hand spinning. But still, working all day, I get about a kilo. So you have to make it a good kilo. (laughs) I use my goat, my mohair. 
and get really good quality. And it's a very light yarn, so it goes a long way. So I have that in the knitting machines, and I was selling all the dyed mohair and hand-spun yarns, all this stuff, and I thought, I'm tired of that. I want to make the end product. So I'm working at trying to make things like the fabric from Chanel jackets. So I have my machine-spun yarns intermixed with hand-spun yarns, and I get these beautiful textures. So I dye them myself also when I need colors, but the natural colors set off the jewel colors. I like to go with jewel colors. So, so the colored angoras, they have colors too? Yes, they come in black and brown also. Uh, very hard to find. They used to be a lot more popular. And um, the brown ones in particular are very recessive, so you get a lot of blacks before you'll get a brown. So I'm trying to get more browns. I have two. But yeah, I, I like the colored a lot. Um, it's, it's such beautiful colors. But I think the natural set is set off by a bit of dyed color, too. It, yeah. And they're hard to come by. Yes. Um, I've, I've sort of had some on order now for a, nearly a year that I'm waiting for this, to get some from the mainland. So yes, they're very hard to find, and then you have to wait. What's their um, fleece like to work with? Oh, well, I'm biased, but I think it's wonderful. You have to wash it really well, though. And once you have that, it's, it's slippery, but it is so strong and shiny. So for a, a spinner, they just need to learn how to uh, spin slowly. It doesn't need to be spun super tight. It's better off with a little twist, lets the shine through. Yep, yeah, it's... Um, I don't know. I think it's the fiber, but that's my bias. Um, and you have to wash it. Is that because of the lanolin in the fleece? Yes, it's not actually lanolin, but it's like that. So, yes, when you get the raw mohair, it is just thick. It's stiff almost with this oil. So you put it in very hot water with no agitation, with some soap. Let it sit there, and you'll get this one-inch layer of oily goo uh, floating on top of the water. And you kind of move it aside, quick take the mohair out and drain it, do it again a couple of times, and then comes out, this looks like silk almost, once you get that all off. It's, it's good it's there because it protects the mohair, but it's getting it off. Have you got many plans for your business? Is it just a small operation or looking to expand? Uh, no, I'm hoping that once I get going here, I, I bought a great big loom. And I've also been looking at a, a small commercial knitting machine. So yes, I'm hoping to be able to do more. Um, and then I can, I'd like to buy more from the Tasmanian growers. I've, I buy some here and there because I, I didn't have white goats before. Now I have a few. But some of them that are showing the goats have really nice goats. Where I concentrated on color. So I'm trying to get good colour, but I wasn't so worried about showing. Goat breeder Robin Dark, who runs a herd of Angora goats at Nabola in Tasmania's northeast, producing the fine fibre mohair. Uh, last words from Tewkesbury, Dave. Sooner have a drink at the end of the day with my dog than a, dr- than a drone. You can't do too much talking to a drone, can you, Dave? Thanks for that. That's our country hour for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.